Hey everyone, my name is Josh Proctor and this is the Life on Side B podcast. On this podcast, we are going to discuss, as the name pretty much clearly states, what life as Side B LGBT Christians is really like. For those of you who don't know, Side B is a term used to refer to Christians who are LGBT, attracted to the same sex, or have gender dysphoria, yet hold a traditional view of sexuality and marriage, and therefore live according to that view. Every episode, I will be talking with different Side B Christians about different aspects of their life, faith, and experiences. My goal with this podcast is to show that being Side B is not this depressing life of self-hatred and loneliness, but rather, it can be pretty dang beautiful and amazing. Now, every season, we will be focusing on a different theme of sexuality and faith issues related to the lives of Side B Christians. This season, though, I am really excited because we are going to be looking at different ways Side B Christians live out their sexuality and find intimacy and community. Each of these interviews has been a huge encouragement, even for me, as I navigate what community and belonging look like in my own life. You will be able to see that there are so many different ways that Side B Christians can live with joy within their faith. And in that way, I hope it can be an encouragement for you too. So with that, let's head into today's episode. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by Lawrence Koo, and we are talking more about community and what that looks like in his own life as a single gay celibate Christian. Beyond that, I have been so excited to get Lawrence's perspective on these kind of topics as someone who is not originally from the States. I think so many times we get wrapped up in our U.S. bubble and forget the differences of what sometimes community and identity can look like from the perspective of another culture. I honestly got a lot out of this conversation, even for myself personally. Believe me, I could have spent hours talking with Lawrence and just soaking in his wisdom and hopefully soaking in his youthfulness as well because he looks way too good for his age. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get a lot out of this conversation as much as I did. It, I know it's taken a little bit for us to get together, but I'm so glad we we're finally able to do this. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Right? Yeah, all your episodes up until now. I'm missing two, but been catching up, so that's been great too. So. Yes, yes. Well, I'm glad that you've been listening. It's an honor. So I've been enjoying it very much, learning tons. So. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, to kind of start off, can you just share a little bit about yourself for everyone listening, anyone who doesn't know you? So my name is Lawrence, Lawrence Koo, or if you want to address me in my Dutch name, that's Lawrence Koo. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm a Dutch native or born and raised in the Netherlands, Uh, moved to the U.S. two and a half years ago. Uh, I did that for the mission organization that I work with. And so my current role with them is to send, to train and develop millennial missionaries to go out to the nations. So that's been uh, such a fun thing. I've been involved in collegiate ministry in, in Amsterdam for 
since I was 22 um, before that time. And um, yeah, my, my parents are Indonesian immigrants to the Netherlands. So that's why I kind of have an Asian outlook, but a very Dutch kind of inside. So uh, that's what people confuse sometimes if I see my picture that you're, you're from the Netherlands. I'm like, yeah. So, so yeah, that's I the short. That. I, yeah. I love when people get confused like that. It's so much fun. Yeah, my sister always makes a joke to like, sorry? I said it just breaks people's stereotypes. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> Can you share a little bit about how you identify and how you came to where you are in reconciling your faith and sexuality? Yeah. Um, I think identification, especially on the sexuality realm, has been, uh, I think, first of all, the uh, one of the cultural differences that I have, you know, got to learn when I came into the U.S., I think labeling is is a very uh, a big deal in American culture, um, and so I kind of had always a, a struggle with how do I identify. I, it, it depends also, I think, in who I talk to. Uh, I know there is different kind of people, and I'm also in ministry, so it's also very tricky for me, or not tricky. I have to be careful in how I want to address the audience that I'm speaking to. And so I feel I'm, I do a, a lot of diversity in how I identify. So if I would say I'm a gay celibate Christian, then I would use that for specific groups. Um, but I also would say I'm a same-sex attracted Christian. Um, and I think this was a less bigger deal where I came from uh, than it is here. Too. And that was kind of one of my first culture shocks, I think, here. Um, and I think, yeah, I think a little bit about my story. I grew up in a, a Christian home. I think I, this is, it has been part of my story to kind of how to reconcile or how to integrate actually my sexuality with my spiritual identity. If you ask me about identity, then I think I go, would go first to being God's beloved and adopted son. Uh, I think that has been the main identity giver that I have kind of embraced um, and that I want to live my life out of. And then my sexuality became kind of like underneath that. And to me, that has never been an identity issue, but more kind of a sexuality issue. And I never, and I think the struggle of my kind of years was that how to reconcile the two together. And how can I be God's child and beloved son if I am wrestling with these feelings? And, and I think, I didn't even know how to verbalize that and how to label that until I was, I think, 17 and a little bit older than that. It's interesting to think of the whole identity issue as almost how connected it is to culture and yeah. especially coming from another culture and being able to look at from an out lens of that. Yeah, identity has a different place in different cultures. So you coming from another culture and then coming into, into the United States, it can be a shock and it can be a shock for Americans to learn that in other parts of the world, that's it's just not as big of an issue. Sometimes. Yeah, and I think it's in language too, because mm -hmm. I mean, even looking from an ethnicity, I have always perceived myself as being Dutch. Um, that's also kind of how, that's who I was. And when I came to America and people see me and like, you're Asian. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm Dutch. And, um, uh, and then kind of like, well, I had to even fill it in forms here, mm -hmm. ethnicity never had to do that until I came to the US and then coming into the minority conversation on ethnicity and then also sexuality mm. and suddenly realizing that I'm a double minority in this country um, I never adopted that 
kind of for myself when I was in the Netherlands because I was never a minority. I've never had that as a label, even towards myself. Mm. And that was a very interesting kind of adjustment in how I have to think through this. And I have, I have several questions on that for even American Christianity and Americans kind of like, how do you think through minority language even? And how does that work when you're now part of a kingdom of Jesus? And um, so it's been fascinating. I'm learning tons in that. So in the Netherlands, when you would fill out forms and stuff like for the government, was that not normally a question like about like, what is your ethnicity and stuff? That's not a normal thing there? No. no. Really? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. You get so used to it here in the States that just, and, and I, I, I would love to talk to someone maybe to see like how the history of the United States kind of plays into that, especially how racial tensions have always been a huge part, obviously of, of the, um, of the history of our history as a country and how maybe that division and all of that has played into this, this importance of identity within your race. And and then obviously also sexuality. Um, And how maybe countries where that wasn't such a divide and that wasn't such an issue that maybe obviously it would develop differently and not become so big of an issue, you know, and, and you can kind of then see a little bit how that uh, I'm just, I'm just going through this and I love it. I, I, I love seeing how things develop in different cultures the same way, kind of like for me going to Colombia, it was, it was really cool to be able to see that in Colombia, people of different races, like there are racial issues. Like I'm not going to pretend that there aren't in Colombia. Obviously there are, but it's not as, it's not as big of an issue in Colombia. Now they do still, it's still a recognized, like there's the, uh, there's the African community, the, a white community like this, there is a little bit of that, but in general, there really isn't this tension among racial groups that you you normally will see everyone just kind of integrating together and just as a natural kind of progression. So, uh, and therefore, it doesn't the identity side of it doesn't become as necessarily big, though it it still does at the same time. Yeah. Huh. Very. Exactly. Interesting. Yes. I think- Similar, I think there is definitely some racial issues in the Netherlands, but it's mm-hmm. not free of uh, America. And I, I do think, and that's also into sexuality kind of conversation. I think, what does it do to you when you call yourself a minority? And, you know, and how much is that helpful thinking through the kingdom of God? Not to dismiss any, and that's what I'm learning here also, not to dismiss any kind of experience that you have that's being very unjust to you. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've heard so many stories in that, but I've never had that experience that myself. Um, and uh, yeah, it's very interesting to come from the outside, come into a culture, and then this is one of the first, and now suddenly I'm a part of a minority too. Oh, even a double minority. And it's like, wow, all right. <laughs> interesting, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess it's just, I guess it's so different to think about from a U.S. mind because in the U.S. culture, and there's probably I, I I am not an expert on this issue at all. So there's probably people listening going, "You're so wrong," um, but and you're welcome to correct me, any listeners who think that uh, you know more than me on this because you probably do. But anyway, with that, um, it's interesting how, especially in the United States culture there seems to be this understanding that when you, when identity is a way of facing oppression, because a lot of times pushing down identity has been a way of 
pressing down minorities to be just be quiet and just to not focus on their their the oppression that they've they've um that they've suffered and so therefore on the opposite side of it identity becomes a way of being able to to go against different um sufferings and victimizations that happen and how that then becomes so important in the 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 mind of a person but then it's i I totally i totally agree like how we always have to remember then what what place does this identity or whatever it is take place in our brains and 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 in our minds and what's the importance level especially in where we identify and in what we identify and how that plays in our lives so it's such a complex topic it is Um, it is i'm yeah anyway okay awesome love it and with that kind of going into the community side of it, because we've been talking in the season, as I've said about community and belonging, you know, one of the things that I've wanted to kind of address in this season was just that whole thinking that side B being side B means you are lonely for the rest of your life. Right. Side B means that you have no community that you, you, that you have no one to talk to you and all of these different things. So I've wanted to be able to see how different people that are side B find community and find belonging and, and combat loneliness and all that. So how has that looked like in your life, would you say? Yeah, I think I, how I always say it kind of like not being in, uh, in a same sex relationship that has never been that actually, that was actually the starting point to answer this question that you're asking. So how is life then going to look like for me? Is this going to be a lonely life? And so coming to kind of like, the, that decision is like, oh, I don't even know how that looks like. I, so I think that over the last 20 years has been my continuous question and battle and struggling and kind of life. Um, and I think one of the key things that I've been learning more and more is uh, I think the calling of, of all our lives, singles and married or celibate and married, is to give our lives away like Jesus did. Um, and so how community looks like for me and intimacy looks like for me is learning how we're not even learning asking jesus to transform me to really love unconditionally um and that that takes for me a lifetime a decade i think of learning through my whole 30s that was my biggest prayer god let me let me just love people well and how to learn to love unconditionally because i i just discovered that i don't love well at all and it is very self-centered um and so that's been the biggest learning curve in kind of like also not how to twitching the mindset of how who can be community to me and who can gives me intimacy but how can i extend that and give that uh, to others and in that receive it and that has been a major shift of thinking in my mind but also in my heart well that's good because that's that makes such a difference when your mindset is focused on how can I, how can I love others rather than how can I just find people that love me? How can I, how can I find the place to receive? And obviously you have to make sure that you are being poured into and everything. But when, when we find it through a way of giving, which is such obviously Jesus, hello, um, did that Jesus did that. And when we are able to look in that way and be able to look outward and, and then be able to receive community through that. Yeah. I, I totally love that. So 
So in your life, has that been, has, has your church played a big part um, in your role, like your, in your community, like your local church? Like what, what has that kind of looked like for you, would you say? Yeah, I think uh, being part of a student ministry uh, in the Netherlands and kind of like growing up in that and being a student leader there and also kind of being uh, uh, on staff there, I think that has been my main community of mm. how that has played a role. Um, I remember going to, when I came on staff and kind of got hired in that sense, I knew that this part of my life should also be kind of like part of my disclosure to uh, my, my boss and my, mm. my peer staff. And um, so I went to my boss actually and I had a conversation, hey, um, you know, sexuality and being attracted to guys and that's just part of my story. And just he listened to my stories and I think how he responded first he said Lawrence I just want you to be part of this team not in spite of this but because of your journey how you walk with mm-hmm. Jesus and that was such a vote of affirmation and confidence in me as a person as a 23 year old and I think he took so much risk I think later like looking back to that um with me and then you know we're in discipleship ministry so I'm meeting guys one-on-one and kind of like pouring my life out to them. Um, But that was part of kind of how I started learning from the beginning, like, oh yeah, community is also, and fulfillment and intimacy is also part of giving myself uh, in ministry and in in kind of like giving myself to these guys while I'm having this team around me who believe me, who support me and trust me in, uh, in who I am. And that was just such a massive vote of confidence, I think, when I was in that phase of life. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because, well, first of all, sidetrack, how old are you? (laughs) Uh, I'm 41 right now, Josh. You're 41? Yeah. I I hate you. You look amazing for your age. (laughs) We have the good genes, right? Yes. I hate it. Yeah. Um, But, yes, because you were talking about that you were 23 at the time, and I'm like, what? Many times it's it's very hard to be able to come out to if you work in a church or you work in a ministry and you come out to your leaders, there's always that fear of what's going to happen. Yeah. And many times people are kicked out, but then many times even if they're they they do stay, I know many times people feel like oh it's staying in be in, uh, despite my attraction, staying bes- despite this like it's a it's a. Yeah. Uh, mercy that my church is having by keeping me in leadership or something. But I love what he said to you that it's not despite it, it's because of your story. Like we have value in the church as we have something to bring to the church as Christians who experience same sex attractions or are gay and celibate. Like we, we, there's something there are ways that we can build the church up that it would not be the same if we were there. And that's kind of like in our last episodes with talking about costly obedience. I love how the last chapter of costly obedience by Mark Yarkhouse talks about that. Um, Cause it's all about the ways we can strengthen the church. So it's not just a matter of, Oh, well, you know, the, the church lets me stay in, even though I could be kicked out, but no, 
I bring something. I can, yeah. I can participate. I think the story of my my boss was also that he, you know, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 was his life first. That has also been coming, well, it has become mine that my grace is sufficient for you because, mm. you know, always make perfect in your weakness. Yes. But he was not at all kind of like, um, he didn't reject any weaknesses from us. Yeah. Um, he wanted us to be surrendered to Jesus and that our weaknesses could be in that place of surrender because there's the place for redemption. And then something that has, and I see that in my own life, something that has been such a darkness in my life or something that I rejected myself so much of that it has become kind of the way that, that kind of where redemption find place in my life. But the recognition of both of that, that it is broken and it is, you know, it's weakness while it is where God wants to use me, that tension and that kind of like paradox together that has to be present, both of that. I cannot mm. say, oh, I, I, this is my glory because it's, it is glory and weakness. And I yes. think that so much Jesus on the cross uh, exemplifying that. And mm. I think that was what he wanted for us. And I think that that's what, how he taught me, kind of like, I believe in you. I believe in this place where I, that I believe that God brings redemption in that. And I've seen God through, do that. So, yeah. Yeah, I, that I love how God is such a God of using weaknesses. Right. That He doesn't need the best people. He de- He needs people who are willing to be used, yeah. no matter what their issue is, no matter where they come from. People who are vulnerable and willing to be used by Him for His purposes. Yeah. Well, and honestly, Josh. I never wanted, I don't, I think I never came to a point where this is what I want to have a ministry in um, and to be public and known in the open that this is part of my story and start speaking on sexuality and, you know, sharing my own story in public. But I think that was God was kind of wanting me to do that. So it was not even that I put myself on this kind of platform and like, look at me and I want to share my story on this. But he said, I want you to share this. Mm. Um, and I'm grateful for that now. Um, but I, I was so afraid in the beginning, kind of like how people would perceive me and so afraid of rejection. And so, yeah, so it's, it's amazing how God kind of like uses my weakness or kind of something that is so, feels so broken to, to, yeah, to redeem him and himself in that. Yeah, definitely. And so in all of this, in kind of pursuing God as a ministry leader, as, as someone who's now kind of more open about their attractions, you know, finding community, all these kind of things. What would you say has been the biggest difficulty for you in, in this whole process? Yeah, I think is that we, I don't know if it's Westerners, is it, I think it's just how bad we do community. <laughs> Realizing on both sides. Yes. Um, and I, let me start with myself. I think because I, I think I have a strong individualized kind of attitude towards life as well. And I think I had to repent from that. Um, I think everything is, toward, uh, is, is kind of geared towards that. Um, and, I, and that's why I realized, like, I love people. I want them to be my friends until they annoy me or until they bug me or until they hurt me and then just get out of my way. Um, and, um, and so I think, especially as a single celibate person, 
I think you can be very selfish. And, you know, on the outside, I was doing ministry and I was everywhere for everyone. But I just noticed with my housemates when I came home and exhausted, I was not the kindest person anymore. And so I was like, this is so interesting that I crave for community, but when I have it, I don't do this well. And, um, and then I see kind of like how we're all trying to do it and we're all craving for it, but I think I feel like we don't know how to. Um, so that's one of the things that I bumped into, my, first of all, myself. Uh, then second, I think in the church and especially in American Christian culture, oh my word, the, the idolization of marriage in the nuclear family has, is so prevalent to me. And as an outsider too, mm-hmm. I'm like, whoa, uh, the big division or the, the, I would say it's kind of like a, I, it, it, there's a boundary between married and single people. And honestly, I feel a lot for our single people are, are heterosexual too. It's like, wow, how do you, how do you do that? Um, how do you do that well? Um, so that's one of the things that I've been wrestling with and speaking more also about it to, to my American friends. I'm like, you guys are weird. <laughs> you are on, on many, on many levels are you weird. <laughs> Um, but this is not kingdom living in community. And, um, so let's talk about that, how that looked like. Um, I think the purity movement hasn't helped America. Um, there's even pockets I heard about emotional purity. Um, and I think it's all very, and it comes, it comes out of a good heart in a sense, wanting to protect, wanting to, you know, being fearful for doing wrong things. But I'm kind of challenging myself and others. How do we live out of the freedom that God has given us to, to, to live in intimacy and learn how to do that? While it be, can become messy in that. Uh, and it's not, yeah, it's not kind of clear, clear cut how to do that but there's such a longing for it. And I just listened to your stories, like your podcast and every story has that craving, has that calling. We need intimacy and we need community. And I honestly think that my married friends, I see that too, that they need it as well. So many of my married friends claim like we have a great marriage. I have a lovely family, but we're so so lonely in our marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how can we cross that relational divide that is evidently there? Um, I think that's one of my main kind of things that I'm, I'm talking through and thinking through and I can like even now living through. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's really good that you bring that up because I actually went out not last night, but two nights ago with a friend of mine who's a psychologist and he was talking about how, um, more primal or, or earlier humans, um, did not have the same issues, especially as modern uh, humans and but especially Americans in the understanding of because earlier humans always and in other cultures but in earlier humans always lived in community more than just couples right. like yeah you got married but you weren't just going to live with the one person you're married with like you are going to live with multiple different people and so there was never this expectation that the one person that you marry or whoever this one other person might be is going to be the one that's going to fulfill all your needs right like that's that that wasn't a concept that wasn't a concept until nowadays when when it's somehow an expectation in our culture that you get married you have to go live by yourself 
You and your spouse need to live by yourselves with your children, no one else. Maybe your mother or father when they get old and can't live by themselves, but that's it. And that we as singles, you know, I get frustrated because I've had friends who are straight and single who are pastors and they're not allowed to advance as pastors because they're not married and therefore they aren't considered like ready yet for a higher level of ministry. And it's so sad because we have a growing number of people in our community, in our country that are staying single longer, just in general. And then we're not having leaders who understand that because a lot of pastors get married younger and they don't know what it's like to be in an extended period of celibacy. Some may, some may, some don't, but um, I, I, from my experience, I obviously haven't been, I've actually never been to Europe, but my experience in Latin America has been very much of the same thing, like that our sense of community in the States, especially, is so isolating. Yeah. Yeah, And I don't don't want to ideal my own, like idealize my own culture because I've seen, I mean, I struggled with that when I was in you. But at least I think there I was invited into my friend's house and mm-hmm. over dinner, I, had, I befriended both of them, men and women. I am part of the family dinner. I take sometimes the baby on my lap and I'm being the father there right now for that particular moment. And mom can eat her dinner, you know, in peace. And, um, and I'm playing around and I have this deep interaction with her as well. And, and then the kids go to bed and then we hang out, the three of us, the whole mm-hmm. night. And it was so surprising the first year that I was here in the U.S., none of my married friends or family friends has invited me into their homes. Mm. Um, and that was such a stark contrast of like, mm. wow, what is this? And so that's why I started exploring, why, why is this not very common um, mm. in, in this culture? Yeah. Have you come to any conclusions of why you think it's not very common in this culture? well i think i think it's more yeah it is that idolization of marriage and nuclear family i i do think that we don't have an a right perspective on sexuality and i think a lot of the church believes that you know like marriage is or marriage or romantic relationship and sexuality like the world they we have started believe that this gives you full completement and fulfillment Mm. And everything and anybody else can even threaten that. Um, Meg, your first episodes, you refer to uh, the theology of the body. And I just started studying that. And it's just been such a revelation to me that my sexuality is actually an expression. First of all, how much I long for Jesus. Even if that's broken, it's still in the core of it, you know, expresses my longing for Jesus. And that it's meant to represent how Jesus gave himself to the church. So I think my story in that is that I just fell in love with this beautiful picture of men and women representing Christ in the church, coming together, being one, having unity with Jesus at the end of times, but also us having unity with each other. I think that's just so amazing. And I long for that. Uh, but that also means to me that we should harvest or kind of like tap into that heavenly reality where we can be have open relationships with each other too, uh, deep relationships, uh, past sexuality and romance, because sexuality and romance is just a picture of. Um, and that's why I fell in love with men and women, because I saw like, oh, marriage is representing that, mm-hmm. that um, 
like even marriage is like between the two. It's not meant like, oh, you're going to fulfill me, but I'm going to give myself fully away to you like Jesus did. And that's how we represent Jesus. And I can do that as a single person, as a celibate person, that not particular to one person, but I can give myself fully to a multiple multitude of people. And that's, I think, what the gift is. The gift is not for myself. The gift is to give myself fully to a multitude of people. Like marriage is not a gift to the person specifically to themselves, but also to give themselves as a married couple, as a family to the community. I think that's the right understanding what it means to be the gift, to receive the gift of marriage and to receive the gift of celibacy in that sense. And that changes, I think, radically my mind frame also, my mindset in the sense of that I believe that we all have the same calling, married, celibate, we're all meant to give ourselves away. And, um, and that's kind of what I'm thinking through. How does that look like when our community, our church community does that really mm-hmm. to each other? So that it's also for me as a celibate kind of gay Christian in that sense, like it's not like who is my community and how necessarily is gonna fulfill this need, but how can I give myself hoping that others creating that same posture towards me and in that, that we're all thriving because I think that's what the kingdom of God will look like. Mm, yes. And, and what have been, well, hmm. no, I actually have another question. Um, well, it goes, well, it goes back to what you said a few, few minutes ago, but I was, I would love to hear your perspective on this because this is something I noticed going in Colombia and then coming back to the States was, um, you know, in, in conservative Christian culture in the States, uh, a whole big thing. And it's gotten huge stuff on the news with a lot of stuff with the vice president about the whole um, Billy Graham rule, you know, that right. you don't, you're not alone with a woman. Right. And it was interesting because I brought a group of pastors up from Columbia to visit a church here that we were getting trained on evangelism and stuff. And we started this church in the state started talking to them about these rules that they have for their pastors that like men and women like cannot, especially married men and women cannot be alone. Like you could, you could be taken down as a pastor and and all this stuff. And it was such a weird concept for the Colombian pastors who are very, who are conservative Colombian pastors to think through like, you're not, you're not going to let a man, how do they work? Like, it was so weird for them to have this idea. And I think that ingrains not only in leadership in the conservative Christian culture, but that a married woman can't have male friends or a married man can't have female friends. And there's this, and obviously understanding, like you said, that there's this idea that one person, because we are supposed to get everything from that one relationship, there's the thought that one person can threaten that whole thing. So what would you say, especially from your, uh, from living, being Dutch, would you say the church in, in the Netherlands and in Europe has been more kind of like the United States in that way or more like Latin America? No, a little bit more like Latin America. Yeah, this is an interesting, I think the first time I met American women who were part of my ministry organization, when they start side hugging me, I was like, what is this? (laughs) This is awkward. (laughs) Uh, and you know like Dutch people even kiss you know like on the cheeks mm-hmm. like hair kissing so we were not used to hugs but usually oh hugs then it's full-on hugs yeah 
but what was this? And so that was kind of my first introduction to a kind of that kind of type of American culture, Christian conservative culture on that. I think it's interesting because, because I think like, the church have believed the lie, and I think it's kind of a, that any form of intimacy emotionally, I think even spiritually, is attached so quickly to um, uh, romance or sexual mm-hmm. intimacy. There's no separation between that. Um, even I think there's physical intimacy and there's sexual intimacy. I think there's a difference between that too. Um, and I think because of the attachment and, and this culture that says you have to get married and every, every person from the other gender, if that's your kind of like interest, is a, is a specific, is, is an option for you to, a romantic interest first, before brothers and sisters first. That to me is kind of like what I see in, in Christian community more and more. And that's why if you've never learned, and that's why they separate, I think, in your 20s already and start when people dating that, oh, yeah, because any emotional, I would say even healthy attachment and intimacy or any emotional or spiritual healthy attachment and intimacy can cause you to have a sexual and romantic kind of interest. Um, let's just separate the two. Let's not take any risk. I think one of the things that I noticed from American culture, it's a fear culture. People are very afraid in this country. And this is one of the things, just afraid. And that's why a lot of single women feel sometimes, especially women has verbalized to me, they feel a threat sometimes to the marriage of their best friends. And I'm like, what is that? And I think when you're in your 20s and you mm-hmm. don't recognize all of these things, then yes, we need wisdom. And we need yeah. something to have to like help them go through the messiness mm-hmm. but instead of like helping them through the messiness because they're learning how to do friendship we just let them not be friends at all so they never learn how to do that exactly yeah and so then when you come 30 40 50 years and you have to work with a person on the other gender in your in the workplace or even ministry or whatever and then you kind of like become you know emotionally a little bit more spiritually whatever yeah, then you, I feel we have not let them grow in maturity in how to handle these things and how mm-hmm. to interpret these things. And like, oh yeah, I can separate this. And maybe yes, from the, the 10 women or something that I'm inter, you know, two of them I should not have close relationship with. Like, let's then keep two people yeah. at a distance. Um, but that doesn't mean with the eight others, yeah, you can have great friendship. Um, because what is the eternal reality of that? You will have great friendship with all 10 of them. So, and I'm kind of like, and so that's what I'm seeing. There's an immaturity, I think, in how we help people through that. We, instead of going through the messiness with them, we just like separate them and makes it easier on us. I totally agree because it's even kind of what I've seen with how Christian culture deals with emotional dependency or, or I saw someone who said, called it, what was it? Emotional enmeshment or something. I really liked that term. I can't remember exactly what it was, but the whole idea is so many times in conservative Christian culture, we have this idea that in order to deal with kind of relationships that have maybe gone just a little too far, you know, have maybe right. crossed boundaries in some way, our automatic thing is just break them apart. Right. And I always think that's like the worst thing to do because you're teaching people that once you make mistakes, you just need to completely break everything off and you're not learning anything for the next time that you have a relationship of how to work through it. And it's like, we need to get to a point where we can, like you said, walk with people and say, you know what, walk with them through the messiness of figuring out how to go through this, how to avoid this stuff. But also when, when, when things are, 
when things happen, when emotional dependency happens, whatever it might be that happens, walking with them like, okay, this isn't the end of a friendship. This isn't the end of a relationship or whatever. Let's walk through this. Let's figure out how to make this healthy. And then that prepares people to be able to learn in the future right. of how to deal with things in, in future times. And I think it also then is a big part. I think also younger people can learn more when they see those played out in older relationships. Like, so for me, going to Colombia, it's been huge to see like my adopted dad and how he interacts with women and so honoring, yet he doesn't have fear of being like alone with women and his wife doesn't have fear of him being alone with women. He, he's around female presidents of organizations and, and right. many of his directors and his vice presidents are women. And that doesn't, neg- those two things, it's not this idea of that he has to separate. Uh, in order to do his job or to be respectful towards women. Um, but yes, and side note also, the side hug, yes. Gosh. <laughs> that, yeah. That's a part of Christian culture that needs to die. Yeah. I mean, love to everyone who loves the side hug, but not yeah. for this person. I think, you know, what you're talking about with your adopted father, it's, um, I think it's part of it is trust, trusting you know, trusting in the marital relationship. Also, no, I think it's self-awareness too, that yes, when you do have feelings for a certain persons, that's kind of out of bounds that you control yourself. Yeah. Because that's part of like, what is the transforming power of God in our lives? Is yes, our heart could be in this place when we're maybe 21 and that's why we need more boundaries. But mm. when you're 30, 40 and you still need that same boundaries, then you haven't matured. And I think yeah. in that um, and how you relate to others. Mm. And I believe in that because, I mean, that's my story. It's kind of like um, some people say, well, that's not possible. I'm like, well, I had to do it with all my male friends that I had certain emotional attachment to or even felt more than emotional attachment is that I had to push through it. And I wanted to like, oh, this is a bad friendship and such a struggle like, oh, this is like, you know, it's wrong in its core. And it wasn't. I just needed to learn how to pursue them well and learn through the messiness of it all. And honestly, I've become a better friend through uh, that messiness. And Mm. um, it's a painful process. It has been, but I think I'm a better friend now to both men and women uh, because of that. Yeah, I would agree. That was, that's similar to my situation of um, during my time going through kind of ex gay ministries and stuff, always the solution was get out of relationships that get bad. And then afterwards, kind of, like you said, it, it just caused me to go to another situation where I just made the same mistakes. I was never learning what to do to make these healthy. And then when I decided like something bad happens, like, you know what? No, I'm going to work through this. I'm going to, to turn this better. And that was where I learned how to grow and be able to see like, and learn from mistakes that then helped me avoid them in the future. So with, uh, you know, I think you touched on it a little bit, but I would love for you to talk about how your community 
or the way you understand community or however you want to do it points you back to Jesus. Right. How does that sense of community really point you back to him? Um, yeah, it's, I, I mean, it's such an interesting question, I think. Um, I think honestly, it points me back to Jesus because I feel the vulnerability of that. Um, and I, I think over the last two and a half years, I felt the lack of it, of good community and kind of like I have to give up my community of 20 years back home, coming into this culture and with these dynamics. Um, so I would say that's kind of part of like, that I needed Jesus more to, and to kind of like pull, pull myself into him. Um, being in a place where I still wanted to give myself where I, when I didn't have the initiative energy at all to do that. Um, and so I think that has pulled me into a closer relationship with him. So that's kind of from the bad part, but I think also from a, from the positive side and I think, you know, like how people have given themselves to me that cost sacrifice. I mean, I think that's the most beautiful thing. Um, how I've been invited into uh, people's homes and just kind of like that very concrete kind of love and appreciation. Um, but I think this is one of my most current kind of struggles in life and like how to do this well and how to receive well and how to give well. Um, and I think that's, I think that's been what God is saying to me also. This is part of my struggle because I felt, I think through all of that, what we just talked about, I do think that God has kind of, that I have pr protected myself because I have been disappointed a lot of times. And I think it's easy to adopt to kind of like, you know, I'm just going to be the strong person. I'm just going to give myself. And I think ministry can do that to you also. Um, and I came to a point, I think, where God was telling me, but do you still hope for deeper relationship and intimacy? And... I'm like, well, God, I'm living with so many unfulfilled desires on this lifetime anyway. This is one of them. It's fine. And he said, well, some of them of your desires, it's not the kingdom, but some of them are. Mm. So do you still hope? And do you pray? And do you engage that for yourself? And I think that was a very challenging question for me of that I was fine with a certain kind of disappointment and let just have a low bar so that I won't get disappointed. Um, and I think that God is asking me to raise the bar again. And mm. that's hard. I think it's a challenging thing for me to do. Oh, I understand that for sure. Because I, I go through the same thing as a leader. You, you feel like, you, I mean, at least for me, yeah. feeling like, you know, I have to have it all together. And um, I can't feel lonely. I can't feel like unsatisfied in, in these kind of things. But then God's like, this is a godly desire just because like, this is something that I want to fulfill in you now. And I want, that doesn't mean that, again, like you said earlier, this doesn't mean that we can expect the people in our lives to be perfect and to perfectly do everything that we would love for them to do. And, but there is a way to find community that is able to walk with us and be messy with us and, and work with us through all of the gunk. And it's, I think it shows so much then, you know, one of the questions, one of the reasons why I've asked this question to pretty much every guest, I think almost every guest, uh, has been because I just always get pointed back to the whole entire idea of Jesus saying like, through, 
through your love for each other, the world will know that you belong to me. And it's in community and it's in love that we then are able to see Jesus. And so I love to see how that looks into people's lives and, and, and God calls us into that. And I, I think my last question would be for you, for other single celibate people yeah. who, whether they're young, just kind of figuring out all of this, whether they're, they've kind of, you know, moved on a little bit, matured a little bit, but still figuring it out. And they want to be more intentional community, you know, combating these kind of concepts that we've talked about that are in U.S. culture of like the individualism and the, and the, the idealization of the family, the, uh, the nuclear family and marriage and, uh, and these things. They want to combat those in their life and in their community and kind of get to a deeper sense of community. What would be some of your advice to those people? Yeah. I think from a heart posture, I think it's John 15 about Jesus saying, I call to my friends because I've given my, my life to you. Um, and I think that's my first, I would say, give yourself to people. And that's your main focus, not how good of a friend is that person to you, but how can you be a friend to others? I think that that's the heart posture. And of course, you need to have some reciprocation of that. Yeah. I think second, very practically for me was engaging friendship and especially intimacy that I recognize kind of four areas of intimacy or five, um, spiritual intimacy, emotional intimacy. Um, I would say social intimacy, doing, having the same interest, you know, doing fun things together and feel connected in that. And there's physical intimacy and then sexual intimacy. And I would say the only last one is not, I would say accessible for me right now as a single celibate person. Um, how do you harvest those four that you are, you know, pursuing intimacy with friends and community for yourself to be healthy on all of those four levels? And I think one of the risks that I had that I wanted one person to embody all four of those. And it's just not the reality. I think of friendship in life for me is that, you know, I think, who is my best friend? I don't even know, you know, but I have several friendships that kind of like that I can go into that. And so I would say, how do you, yeah, how do you pursue intimacy on a, on a friendship level that goes deep, that is profound, that you, yeah, that touches your soul, I think, and that nurtures it. And I think, yeah. And, and in that, how do you give yourself in that? I think that's the, uh, that's how I'm pursuing. This is how I want to, um, that's my attitude in life. And this is what, what my kind of, yeah, what I'm going for in my relationships. Mm. Yes. I, it's man, so many things that it's so crazy. Some of the things that you're bringing up in this, com in this conversation, because some of them have are like, they've been coming to my mind lately. And so it's really weird that like you're bringing them up. And I'm like, that's such a divine like God moment. Mm -hmm. um, because even just the whole thing of looking how you can love before looking about how you can receive love from the other person. And just, I've seen that ex exemplified in people lately in my life in such a way that I'm like, dang, like I need to do that. <laughs> just being able to look and, and just, you know, I had a friend who wrote me and we were talking about making plans and I was like, you know, whatever, you know, like he wanted to do something and he was like, no, Tell me what you want to do. I want to hear 
Like, I want to make sure that I've heard you. Like, I want to make sure that I hear you. And, and even just small things like that of being able to say, like, I want to hear you as my friend. I want to be able to hear and, and see the ways that I can serve you or, or see what you're thinking. And, and even just those small ways can make such an impact in our friendships when we are looking to the needs and the desires and um, the concerns of our friends before just automatically assuming and going with whatever we're thinking or whatever that might be like. So uh, I'm so glad that you've brought up, I, I'm so, I'm so glad that you've brought up the things that you have because yeah. it's crazy. I think it's, if I may kind of, I think mm-hmm. it's part of a larger calling, I think as side B Christians. And you know, I've been, we talking a lot and even over the podcast that you have sent on talking about precision that we have in our communities and uh, also the kind of the, you know, like the misunderstanding, I think, were mm. about the community. And at the same time, I felt like, yes, this is exactly the place sometimes where we need to don't vic- not victimize ourselves. Yeah. Because we have been given out of our weakness this power, this understanding, which is, you know, I think such a great understanding that God has given us. They call in the revoice called us prophets to the church. Mm. Yeah. But we're called to prophets who love the church and we cannot afford to exclude ourselves and say, oh, the church is doing this or this wrong and I'm not part of it, but we are part of it. And I have always seen that how to give myself away is also kind of like, yes, there's a lot of ignorant people and who don't know the stories that we have and they don't understand us. But as a prophet, as a leader also, how can I gracefully and with a lot of grace, love them well and bring them in, a, in, a, in an understanding that God has given us in order to, you know, move and advance his kingdom. That, you know, the unity that we have, that is actually a testimony in the gospel. And I think we have an important part to play in ourselves to do that and how we are posturing ourselves in instead of like they have to understand us. No, let's give ourselves to them. Yeah. As we're part of the same body, we're part of the same church, mm. and it is about Jesus. So, and in that sense, I can I can handle the ignorance and sometimes really hurtful things that they can say. Um, but I'm like, no, I'm called to to confront, but at the end of the day, love you because mm. you're still my brother and sister. And I would love for us to to kind of engage in that, yeah, in that discipleship even for ourselves. Well, everyone, that's it for today. Please look in the show notes for information in case you want to get in contact with Lawrence. His contact information will be there. Uh, Also, if you have questions for Lawrence that you wish had been asked, send them in to the podcast email or through social media. And hopefully those might be included in our Q&A episode later on at the end of this uh, season. I want to thank each of you guys for continually listening and be listening next week for our next episode.